and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and the rest of the world. And as ever, we have got so much to cram in in our time together. Yeah, big, big issues lurking. So if it's okay with all of you, what I would like to do actually normally, as you know, although you might not if you've just tuned in for the first time, I reflect on one theme and then open it up to all of you and we range quite widely or urgently topical but range quite widely if it's okay with all of you i would like to address more than one theme today all related to brilliant questions but also to what's happening so this is what i'm going to do it's pegged to questions i'm going to reflect more speedily than usual when i have one theme on da 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 I'm going to return briefly to the Labour Party just for what Rishi Sunak might call some clarification on what I said last week. Then we're going to go to the uh, French elections. Then we are going to go to Rishi Sunak and that drama. And finally, I'm going to reflect on the BBC's search for a political editor and what that tells us about the current state of the BBC. So those are the kind of four themes. What an ego choosing four themes to reflect on in our time together and then we'll go more widely to some questions so yeah as i said we've got tons to cram in oh yeah next week is a bank holiday monday but you're still going to get a rock and roll politics but the best way to make sure you get it do subscribe please on whatever platform you use because then it just arrives like do you remember when newspapers used to be delivered yeah they just arrive. I, lo- I get really excited when my podcasts just arrive as if by magic. And, oh yeah, please leave a review, but only if you like it. A good review makes all the difference, apparently. I don't understand why, but in terms of people being able to get access to the podcast. So that would be great if you got a spare moment over these Easter days. So yeah, that's about it. I'm going to go straight on now, if that's okay with you. With For those of you who didn't hear last week, you can obviously hear back. I was trying to explain the challenges and opportunities for Labour politically and electorally with the cost of living crisis. And I thought I argued that the challenges included a recognition that this was not like 1997 and cautious incrementalism isn't enough. I thought that was the kind of essence of my message. But I got this email from uh, Tony Ellis from the Wirral saying he's very gloomy about Labour's approach so far and he sort of admonishes me for not highlighting more closely the limits of the approach so far but I thought that was the essence of what I said so maybe I screwed up last week. Anyway he says the cost of living is a gaping policy open goal Labour should own but the story they tell seems so half-hearted. I know there are other big stories out there, from Ukraine to other silly stories, trivial stories, but really where's the beef, where's the excitement and genuine passion, the momentum that gets a party confidently over the electoral finishing line? Now, Tony was saying this partly to admonish me, but I thought that's what I said. So just to reiterate, there needs to be, well, I called it in the podcast, but maybe I didn't stress it enough, and I'll only repeat it briefly, a combination of reassurance and excitement. And if you look at the UK now, it's not the UK of 1997. It is too febrile. It's the UK that, or England that voted for Brexit. You've got the nationalists, the Scottish National Party, way ahead in Scotland still and ruling Scotland. You've got the likelihood soon of Sinn Féin and others in Northern Ireland looking for being in a much stronger position politically and looking for an independent Ireland. You've got the ongoing Brexit situation. This is a country in a degree of turmoil. And if your message is, in a way as Labour's was in '97 look, this mansion is rotting, we plan to change the ashtrays, it's not going to be enough now. It was then because Blair managed to excite while being reassuring. But he was talking to a different electorate than the one that has experienced Brexit, or or not experienced, chose Brexit, as I say, Scotland, and all the other things whirling round, and now an inflationary situation 
which was emphatically not the case in 97 when the economy was growing. And so absolutely, Labour has to raise its game and not assume that just by saying, look, we'll do a little bit more, we're not Jeremy Corbyn anymore, they're going to win, because they won't. They will lose. A country in a state like this, well, we would will choose SNP in Scotland, Johnson in England, where he's going to do a sort of Brexity nationalist pitch. But equally, I think there are huge opportunities for Labour and over to them to take it. So that's what I was trying to say. If I didn't say it, that's a brief summary. Now, on a kind of similar theme, oh yeah, this is from Anthony Broxton, who, amongst many other things he does, he does this brilliant Tides of History. If you look at, if you follow Tides of History on Twitter, it's really brilliant. They tend to tweet on anniversary days. And and Anthony sent me the Twitter feed that they did of the 1992 election. Now, on the um, Patreon site of this podcast, I've just delivered my bonus podcast of the 92 election. And Anthony very kindly listened. And he says, Dear Steve, just a quick email to say how much I enjoyed your podcast on the 1992 election. Without doubt, the most fascinating of modern times. That's interesting you think that, Anthony, because you're an expert of all those elections. I as I reflected on the podcast, came to the same conclusion. It was a really important, interesting election. And there hasn't really been enough analysis done on it. The The analysis is done on all the obvious turning points, 45, 79 and 97. But this one was really interesting. Anyway, Anthony says, oh, yeah, subscribe to the, what's it called? Patreon. And you'll get that one and the 83 election and the uh, February 74 election. The February 74 election was a bit, in some ways, like 92 in some respects, except for Labour won with, in a hung parliament, a few more seats. Anyway, Anthony says, my question for the podcast is whether you think Starmer will end up in a similar position to Kinnock at the next election. Say, hypothetically, Labour enter the next election as favourites to be the largest party. Will they be able to withstand the inevitable questions on deals, PR, the union, the economy, etc.? Kinnock had not, as you say, bomb-proof those questions in an election of fine margins. Will Labour be able to withstand the pressure that comes from being a front-runner? Yeah, interesting questions, because I think, again, when I was working on that podcast about 92, I, I did see echoes with now. You see, Neil Kinnock ended up in the worst of all worlds in that election, in that he had tried to be prudent and cautious, and John Smith, his shadow chancellor, made him even more so in ways that I'll briefly refer to in a minute. And and yet they were done with tax and spend at that election, the kind of Labour's tax double whammy and all that kind of thing from the Tories. And they didn't benefit from big ideas to excite an electorate either uh, because they were being cautious. So they fell between those two stools. And that could happen with Labour. Anthony is also right. One of the brilliant things Tony Blair did in the build-up to 97, and here, this is what a Labour leader needs to do before every election. So I'm not comparing now with 97. But Blair went away with the mountain of policies he had inherited or revised when he became leader in 94. He used to go away on his own and analyse what they were proposing and to go through all the possible questions and traps that might arise from those policies and bomb-proof them. And I can give quite a few examples of that, which I think he told me at the time, one of which was Scotland. You see, Labour was saying there had to be a referendum on the euro for constitutional reasons. They were in a torment about whether to offer that referendum, but John Major did, so they felt they had to. But having that used that reason, a referendum is necessary when you're making a big constitutional change. Blair noted, as he was going through policies, that they weren't going to offer one on Scotland. There was going to be a Scottish Parliament, a big constitutional change, but no referendum. And Blair envisaged the press conferences, why aren't you offering one on Scotland if you are on the euro? That's a big constitutional change too. So Blair decided to bomb-proof that policy he had to offer a referendum on the Scottish Parliament and devolution. 
and he knew all hell would break in Scotland, and it did for a time, although he was completely vindicated. They offered a referendum and they won it. But there's one example of how, as a Labour leader especially, with the kind of media scrutiny much more critical on Labour than the Tories, there's an example of how you have to bomb-proof policies. But also, as Anthony suggests, you have to anticipate attacks. And Keir Starmer is lucky in that Johnson has told him how he's going to frame the next election partly. Brexit is going to be absolutely there. He's going to try and turn the tables and trust and say, look, you can't trust Starmer. He's an Islington lawyer who voted Remain, tried to block the referendum. And they're going to do tax Labour's hidden tax plans and all of that as part of the attack. Now, the lesson from 92 is prepare in advance. Preempt those attacks months, if not years, beforehand. Neil Kinnock gave an interview recently where he said he was urging Labour to address the attacks in 1991, at least a year before the election, because they were already beginning. But John Smith resisted. He wanted it to be, as Shadow Chancellor, the alternative budget just before the election, where he would kind of mount Labour's response. It was too late, as Kinnock said. An election campaign is always too late. So there are big lessons for Labour, I think, Anthony, in uh, 92. And if I didn't make it clear, Tony Ellis from the Wirral, I hope I've clarified my view now. Okay, now related to this is what's going on in France, because France, like Britain, is going through sort of seismic change. I gave the examples of Britain from Brexit to the rise of the SNP and so on. And look at that first round in the French election. Those two old orthodox parties that often hold held power, the old kind of uh, socialist party, the old kind of centre-right party, nowhere. Single-figure percentages. Meanwhile, the party to the left of the Socialist Party picks up kind of 20 plus percent. You have Le Pen again as the contender to Macron. It is kind of really interesting to see another country going through the sort of changes to the political landscape that have erupted around the UK since really since the financial crash of 2008 and then that coalition in 2010 and so on. Anyway, our French correspondent, Dominica Jewell, uh, if I hadn't heard from her, I was going to say, Dominica, give us your update live from France. And here it is, almost live from France. Dear Steve, I noticed that no article which I've read so far in the UK press on the presidential election acknowledges that Oh, hold on, Dominica. I'm reading your question now on a thing. It's just here it is. Yes, acknowledge that in fact Macron increased his win by two points compared with 2017 over Le Pen. There's so much Macron bashing from some quarters too, but this isn't confined to the British commentariat. Uh, nobody I've spoken to, and including yesterday, was prepared to vote for Macron in the first round. But everyone who expressed an opinion declared that they will vote for Macron in the second round round. And then Dominica also asks what I think of the way this French electoral system works, which is a really interesting question. On the first point, Dominica, to be honest, I have read in some UK newspapers that Macron has increased his vote. It's true, uh, certainly in the UK, and I think in France as well, they are portraying it all as very close and on a knife edge. And from what you say, it isn't. That people who couldn't face voting for Macron the first time round will do so in the next round. Let's see. Uh, we're so used to upsets in the UK, Dominica, that we are conditioned to assume that, uh, you know, Le Pen will kind of is up there and very close and could, could win it. But from your on-the-spot experience, you seem to suggest otherwise. I kind of think there are some pluses for the French system. It, it would only work here, obviously, if there was a presidential system because in the end you narrow it down to two individuals but what it does give and oh god i'm moving towards that electoral reform special that i know you're all excited about and i'm dreading but it certainly manages to do two things allow voters to voice their genuine political position so you get the kind of Le Pen vote to the right of Le Pen, 
the left vote to the left of the sort of old socialist party. But then you have to focus in a kind of UK kind of way as to which is, in a lot of cases, your least worst choice. But that means, for example, in the next two weeks, for Macron to win, he's got to move a bit to the left to get that 20% vote that went for the left. And so he, 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 his positioning will be really interesting. The Pens is quite sort of straightforward. So I sort of, in some ways, think it works. But yeah, let's see how the next two weeks go. By the way, I'm, I'm kind of increasingly of the view that the focus on prime ministers in the UK means we might as well have a presidential system. Look at Johnson and Keith. Keith? Have I pronounced that correctly? In the Ukraine at the weekend. Yeah, yeah. I was going to do something on that, but we've got so much to get through. I not, but I might do the latest on that next week. Thank you. Oh, oh, Dominica, keep us informed, will you? The next two weeks are going to be really interesting, and I'll be watching the debates between the two of them. But but you'll be able to understand it much more from France. Okay, now Sunak. So this is based on a couple of emails. Uh, I've had loads of emails on Sunak. I apologise if I can't read them all out. But uh, Leon, Leo Malin, is it Malin or Mollen? Excuse me, Leo, I haven't got my reading glasses on, who's in Walthamstow. And he says, I'm so grateful to have found this podcast. Oh, thank you, Leo. And I've now been listening to it religiously for some time now. I, I like to think of us, Leo, as a sort of evangelical community you know of kind of yeah it's a faith really but thank you so much for your religious attention as part of my immersion into the rock and roll politics faith there we go you see it's a faith i've been reading some of your books oh wow and currently reading prime ministers we never had a few months ago rishi sunak was seriously beginning to be seen as a possible future leader of the Conservative Party. Now, with his poor handling of the cost of living crisis and questions regarding his wife's non-DOM tax set status, to what extent do you think he could eventually be one of the next chapters in Prime Ministers we never had? Well, I've always had my doubts about uh, Sunak and have expressed them here, and I think he is very much going to be in the next chapter. Indeed, Leo, I thought of asking my publishers whether I could do a chapter for the next paperback on Sunak but to be honest it's too risky imagine if I did that and the paperback comes out prime ministers we never had from Rab Butler to Rishi Sunak and over the summer Sunak becomes prime minister it will look like the silliest book ever to have been published so I can't but what's happening to him is interesting and I'll come on to it in a moment. Uh, Stuart Smith says, watching the recent travails of Rishi Sunak, I'm reminded of the career of John Moore in the late 1980s, a cabinet minister who was talked of as a future prime minister with little evidence to back it up. I wonder if Sunak's career will be similarly short-lived. Thanks for the excellent insights. Well, thank you for your excellent insights, Stuart. That's Stuart Smith. And Cathy Mears says, I think we can all agree Rishi isn't going to be Prime Minister anytime soon. The question I ask is, will this make Johnson safer in his job, or does it leave the field open to a new rival? And if so, who? I can't think of many obvious contenders. In fact, only Truss, who's had a good war, if you can say that. By the way, I'm delighted that the huge incompetence and lack of political savvy shown by Priti Patel in dealing with Ukraine visas may have put an end to her chances. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I, I do, Cathy. I don't ever think she had a great chance of being leader. It is preposterous the way we choose leaders in the UK. Little is given to their leadership qualities or indeed what are the qualities required of leadership. Other factors come into account with Johnson. Obviously it was Brexit and his capacity to see off Farage and so on. But she she simply has not got the capacity to run the Home Office, which is a challenging, challenging brief, I have to say. So I don't think she will be uh, Prime Minister. I don't think she ever really had much chance. So yeah, it does help Boris Johnson, the fall of Sunak. Uh, John uh, Bowdler writes, would it be fair to say that Rishi Sunak and his wife are citizens of nowhere? Yeah, uh, John, 
It's a great joke. I've kind of read it elsewhere, to be honest. I think I have anyway. But it's still a great line. And it's a serious line as well, because in a way they are. Having lived in America, his wife regarding herself as Indian, and now in the UK. But on... So brilliant questions. And I say there were many others. And it's it, it's captured something, hasn't it? It's a very accessible thing for voters to grasp. A chancellor putting up taxes and yet has tax arrangements legal, which hugely uh, benefited his family and him. What I would reflect on on this, and I don't think enough has been made of it, is the origins of Rishi Sunak's rise to that hugely demanding job of Chancellor of the Exchequer. You know, politics is so surreal these days that we haven't reflected much on it, but Let's go back to it. In effect, what happened was Dominic Cummings didn't like Sajib Javid, who was Chancellor, Johnson's choice as Chancellor, and wanted Rishi Sunak in, and engineered for that to happen. In effect, uh, Dominic Cummings sacked the Chancellor and put in Sunak, and Johnson was at that point, and how things have changed, so in awe of Cummings, he just accepted, even though he likes Javid. And rates him. Look, he's brought him back into the cabinet, although now we hear that Javid was a non-dom in the kind of farcical twists and turns, more than farcical, dark farce of this cabinet. So there was Rishi Sunak. He had been a junior minister for a bit. He was then chief secretary to the Treasury, which is a largely cocooned job. It's an important one, but it's not a big public one. It's not one where make or break decisions take place. You negotiate public spending and so on. But it's nowhere near on the level of Chancellor. And there he was working away on that job. Javid had only been Chancellor for a short time, and suddenly... He is promoted miles and miles up the political hierarchy to Chancellor. And, you know, I think he's a decent bloke. I don't think he would have sat there uh, with his wife saying, right, how do we keep all this quiet? Uh, oh, isn't it great that we're making all this money in this way? I don't think it would have been like that. He got the chancellorship. He was thrown straight into it. He became incredibly popular during the pandemic. With his furlough scheme, it was actually, I think, much more the Treasury's furlough scheme. And it went to his head. And I don't blame him for it going to its, his head. It goes to everyone's head when they read how popular and brilliant they are and how likely they are to be the next prime minister. You aren't human if it doesn't change you. I've seen it with many others. Uh, the Miliband brothers, they used to read columns uh, urging them to be the next Labour Prime Minister, you know, and, and different columnists praised either of the brothers, you know, it was very polarised. But uh, I, I saw them change as they heard how brilliant they were and read how they could well be the next Labour Prime Minister. And again, I don't blame them. These things are intoxicating, but dangerously intoxicating. And Sunak, didn't do what experienced politicians who've experienced a lot of setbacks as well as triumphs do, which is analyse everything to see where problems could lie in the future. And so to take Blair and Brown, for example, having they were brought up on endless election defeats, and they used to sit there with others, Campbell, Mandelson and stuff, and whatever issue came up, they kind of thought through every possible consequence and how they would deal with it. Gave an example of Blair bomb-proofing the Labour's 97 election manifesto. Now, I don't think Sunak did that and was not politically savvy or developed enough to think of doing that. And now he is falling fast. And it's a bit like Partygate. This is an accessible issue the Chancellor putting up taxes for low earners and everybody else as he goes back to one of his many houses and his fortune. And I suspect it means he will not be the next leader and that he could well be finished as a politician, as 
uh, John Moore, many of you will have forgotten John Moore, but there was a phase. He he, he didn't have the soaring rise of Sunak, but he was one of Thatcher's favourites. He was her health secretary, very good-looking kind of figure of a, a conventional sort. Anyway, he fell dramatically. And it, I think it's going to be very hard for Sunak, who wants to take... You know, Remember, he's, this, he's very right-wing. He's a you know he's a self-proclaimed fiscal conservative, a 1980-style chancellor, and if he's going to stick to those convictions, he's going to have to take some really tough decisions in the next few months, which will affect all of our living standards adversely. And now people know just how rich he is, and some of the arrangements that brought that about, and I think it's close to unsustainable. And obviously, it doesn't solve Johnson's own distinct problems about the parties. God, that police investigation. You know, you hear, hear about one party and then they go quiet. Uh, you know, God knows what they're doing. But on it goes. But clearly it helps him when there are so many kind of problems about one of the potential alternative candidates and I think it's questionable to say whether he can carry on as chancellor I think he does some of the papers are saying you know he's thinking of giving it all up well I'm sure he'll give it all up if he's sacked as chancellor Uh, but he's going to try and carry on but in the context we're about to go through this summer talked about it last week inflation it's quite hard with what has happened for him to take the kind of decisions he would want to take it means by the way he will be less powerful in uh, his assertiveness. That spring statement was more of a Sunak spring statement than a Johnson one, because it was framed when Sunak was strong, seen as a likely uh, successor, and Johnson was struggling to save his skin. Now it's Sunak who is. And, And so the dynamic changes once more. But look at the origins, the rise of Sunak. And this is such a bizarre government, but that was one of the more bizarre sequences wasn't it the kind of Dominic Cummings basically changing the chancellor Uh, anyway so thank you for that and all your other uh, very interesting insights about Sunak Uh, I've read them all I haven't got time to read them all out and now to my final kind of reflection before we return to some of your other questions. And this is uh, from Jamie Singleton, who says, oh, love the podcast. Oh, thank you, Jamie. I often listen uh, to it during my Monday evening walk from Bethnal Green in East London through the city to St. Veras Foster Lane near St. Paul's Cathedral, where I'm a bell ringer. It puts uh, me in a good frame of mind for the ringing practice. Oh, what a... What a romantic image, Jamie. I kind of want to do that walk. It sounds very nice. And bell ringing, I, I, I don't think I've got the skill for bell ringing. Yeah, well, I, well I, I hope it improves your bell ringing, the podcast. Anyway, thank you for that. And he says, my question is regarding the new BBC political editor. A recent report in The Guardian suggested the BBC had rejected the candidates of an all-female shortlist and re-advertised the role with speculation that Chris Mason is being encouraged to apply. What qualities and ambitions do you think the new candidate, whoever it ends up being, should bring to the role? Well, this is an interesting question because it gives a wider insight, I think, into the kind of slightly depressing thinking in parts of the BBC. I stress parts because the BBC is doesn't think with one uh, kind of whole they're all over the place with kind of managers all over the place, editors and all the rest of it. But I, I have spoken every now and again to people involved one way or another with the process of appointing a political editor, which has taken ages. And it's quite depressing because, you know, one of the criteria early on, apparently, from some of the kind of macho managers there was they wanted someone to get them exclusives uh, get get me scoops and what they were more worked up about than anything else was that ITN had got the scoops on Partygate uh, Paul Brand their ITN political correspondent or chief political correspondent or whatever he was called was getting all the scoops and this was kind of almost the limit of their thinking. We need someone in, get me the scoops, get us the exclusives. And what got them down was um, 
watching the ITN news at 10, seeing an exclusive, which the BBC then had to lift and cite ITN. And so that became the sort of key criteria for the kind of shallow machismo wing of the many layers of BBC management. And it has led to a sort of degree of chaos uh, because they decided, obviously, by definition, if they were worried that the BBC weren't getting enough scoops, they wouldn't. Uh, they would be much more interested in an outside candidate who could get scoops. Um, so people were being interviewed on that basis, uh, and then they were left uh, with two uh, candidates uh, externally, as, as this has been reported, and they looked at them, and then they started worrying about other things. Uh, oh, yeah, oh, no, she's tweeted in the past a kind of left-wing tweet. She's tweeted a Remainer kind of... Oh, no, oh, help, what are we going to do? Oh, we better go back internally. And um, so this is what happens with that kind of shallow machismo. It happened and explains, you know, the decision to send a helicopter over Cliff Richard's house. Oh, yeah, this uh, we'll stuff Sky, we'll stuff ITN, we'll get the helicopter up. Um and that explains the overhyping of the uh, Amol Rajan interview with uh, uh, the tennis player whose name I've temporarily forgotten, you know, the one who doesn't take the vaccines, Djokovic. Djokovic, is that how you pronounce it? Um, a perfectly valid interview from Amol. It's not that, but the overhyping was just absurd. But it was an exclusive. Oh, yeah, we, uh, this will stuff Sky, this will stuff ITN. And so you couldn't move from hearing that interview and people tweeting BBC exclusive, oh, hold on, you know. And actually, you know, everyone kind of knew he hadn't taken this bloody vaccine and kind of, you know, it wasn't as big as they made it out to be, but it was, oh, BBC exclusive. And it got them, there was a huge reaction against as a result of the over-hyping. But these types never learn. They haven't got a greater sense of the BBC's purpose and mission. Um, beyond this, oh, let's sort those bastards out. We'll get an exclusive, you know. Um, and it's caused chaos in the hunt for a BBC political editor. Um, and, um, yeah, I've just read what you, you've all read, that they're now going for an internal candidate, probably Chris Mason or somebody like that. Um, but I've got absolutely no doubt uh, what it needs um, and what, it lacked actually uh, during the uh, regime of uh, Laura Koonsberg. Laura Koonsberg, God, she, she is so thick-skinned, and and uh, the abuse was wholly undeserved in the sense that she is not overtly partisan and didn't try to be to the left or to the right and all the kinds of stuff. You just you don't think like that in the BBC. You don't go in and think, right, here I am. I'm going to pump out left-wing or right-wing propaganda, Tory propaganda. Uh, you go elsewhere if you want to do that kind of stuff. But um, she was basically a reporter. Uh, and what, so each damn, what, you know, what AJP Taylor called about history, one damned event after another was reported with great energy from six in the morning till 11 at night and so on. But what a BBC political editor needs to bring to that role is weighing up significance of events uh, weighing up which sources you bring to the fore when explaining a story putting stories in a context so they don't just appear to have erupted from a vacuum but have seeds that go back some time and you need to relate it to previous events and developments so it kind of makes sense that's what you got to do um, otherwise, for people just dependent on you as a source, um, it's utterly bewildering. Oh, yeah, oh, I see, yeah, Brexit. Now, oh, now it's Johnson as Prime Minister. And now, oh, yeah, now Farage is here. Now he's gone. And, oh, yeah, oh, Jeremy Corbyn's become leader. Oh, wow. And especially within the BBC where the assumption is, I think, um, or was for a time, that the only kind of range should be Cameron to Blair. So they were struggled a bit with Brexit and uh, the rise of Corbyn. But these things don't happen by accident. There are always reasons, and you've got to make sense of it. 
And you can do it in two ways. That's when the presenter interviews the political editor because pictures don't get in the way. I know you've only got two or three minutes, um, but you can do it. Um, and on the state programme, a bit longer. And that's that's the main qualification. And incidentally, that qualification gets you exclusives because you become respected and trusted by all sides because in contextualising, you make sense of Brexit. Uh, by contextualising, you make sense of Corbyn. By contextualising, you can make sense of the fall of Corbyn and the rise of an alternative leader in Starmer. But it's all rooted somewhere. Um, and when you've got trust, people come to you with exclusives. Although exclusives the other naive thing about, oh, yeah, let's get a political editor who gets us exclusives. Let's try and stuff ITN. Um, it's much harder for people in politics to give exclusives to the BBC because immediately someone at the BBC gets an exclusive. Layers of management get involved and you're not quite sure what outlet it's going to appear on um, and so on. The BBC has so many outlets. Are you leaking it uh, or giving someone an exclusive that will appear on the 10, the Today programme, 5 Live, all of them? How is it going to be? And, and the sources for the scoops can lose control. You know with ITN it's going to appear on the 6 o'clock bulletin, the news at 10 or whatever. Um, and there's a greater degree of certainty about what's going to happen to the exclusive. Um, so there are other problems. Now, but th the main one is that, and this goes to the wider sense of what is the purpose of the BBC, a public service broadcaster. And uh, it was really interesting because I know there were some people within this process making the kind of points I've made, which seems to me pretty obvious. You know, this is the purpose of the BBC. You know, John Burr used to call it a mission to explain, um, a bias against understanding. And, and, and that's the key. Now, I don't know who they're going to appoint. I don't know who it was who was kind of, oh, I can guess, but I don't know, so I'm not going to name names, going on about exclusives and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that is the key. And if the BBC doesn't discover that, it's going to lose many more people. They're now, uh, I noticed there was a story in the Times that they're now briefing, you know, they're quite pleased that a lot of the BBC talent has left because it's lowered the wage bill, etc. But it was never done as a deliberate policy because they don't think like that either, um, you know, in this multi-layered management. Um, but it almost happened by kind of an accident, which they're now rationalising as being good news. Um, it needs much greater grip, depth of thought, and a, a clearer sense of purpose uh, for that part of the BBC, News and Current Affairs, uh, to reclaim its appeal and authority uh, i get the impression at the moment it is utterly bewildered and incoherent and a symptom of that has been the chaos of this search for a political editor blimey well via those questions i have been going on for quite some time on those i also wanted to do johnson and ukraine but i think maybe next week ukraine um who knows who knows where we'll be next week but as i said at the beginning there will be your regular podcast, even though it's kind of Easter. Um, so do subscribe and then you get it automatically um, uh, when it comes out. So um, yeah, let's now um, go on to some other questions. Oh yeah, the email address, by the way, steverick14 at icloud.com. Um, and this one's from uh, Stuart Grant in uh, Berkhamsted. Uh, Stuart says... Um, Oh, yeah, I write this as I'm about to listen to your reflections on the 1992 election on Patreon and must say I'm greatly looking forward to it. As an aside, I recall David Dimbleby telling an anecdote of chaos uh, on the BBC election, in the BBC election night studio amid crippling indecision about the exit poll result. Five minutes before going live and at the final rehearsal for the 10am Big Ben bong moment, he looked behind him to see a big picture of Neil Kinnock, projected to be our next Prime Minister. A few minutes later, this time live on air at 10, he was shocked to turn around and see the projection had changed and the picture behind him was that of John Major. Actually, Stuart, 
I'm not sure whether that was the case. I think at 10 o'clock they were predicting a hung parliament. And maybe, on the basis of the exit poll, and maybe there was a photo of both of them, Kinnock and Major. Um, but I know that exit poll caused absolute uh, panic in the BBC um, and all kinds of consequences flowed from it. Um, and I talk about that in the podcast. It was a very consequential election on many fronts. And Stuart adds, changing the subject to your Union Jack socks. I still haven't got them yet, Stuart. It occurs to me that we have the makings of a rock and roll politics cooperative here. You as leader, of course, well, thank you. I'm in a cooperative. There is no leader, really, but thank you. Um, you as leader, I could source and supply the socks, dealing with all the Brexit supply chain issues. And we could call upon the expertise of Laundry Joe for cleaning services. Uh, this is this is brilliant. We have some great bread makers to enable us to diversify and some fast runners who'd be perfectly suited to our delivery function. We just need a deputy leader to ease the burden on you. It's got to be you, Stuart. Uh, someone not currently in the spotlight, but talented and ready to serve. Wait, we have just the man, Lee Rowley. If any listeners have further suggestions for other roles, these will be greatly appreciated before I put our application to Dragon's Den. This is genius um so yeah well i think i think we've cracked it it can be a cooperative we could all make a fortune i mean you know but the money would be evenly just a bit like john lewis we'd all get um we'd all get our kind of shares in it um oh yeah and so brexit socks bread brilliant supply chain from people running to deliver the bread uh, and, and lee rowley absolutely before he becomes the next prime minister he gets political experience, which Sunak never got, by being our deputy in the co-op. Uh, Stuart, genius. Absolute genius. Ah, now, yeah. Uh, co-payments are still rumbling on. Uh, more than rumbling. I would say charging on as a theme. Uh, Noah Keat, I was interested to hear in the last podcast your support for the idea of co-payments in the NHS. I wondered whether you could expand on that further. Do you believe any discussion around NHS reform is so tricky because of fears it would result in privatisation? It kind of the reason it's uh, uh, tricky, uh, Noah, is because it breaks, you know, if you like, the fundamental kind of spellbinding principle of free at the point of use, and I can understand uh, uh, why there is huge resistance to it. But on the other side, the NHS needs massive resources. I don't think the national insurance rise uh, announced by old Rishi a couple of weeks ago is going to do the business. And we need to get more money in. And the question is how, uh, given the uh, limited range of tax rises uh, available, given how high, relatively speaking, tax is for the UK, not other countries, not, not like uh, equivalent countries in Europe. Um, so it just strikes me that co-payments is one way through it happens in other places as we're going to hear uh, shortly um, as a way frankly of raising money but also of empowering patients you know all these kind of NHS reforms which caused a degree of fractured chaos uh, the Blairite reforms the Cameron reforms were all aimed at empowering patients they just got lost in an even more complicated uh, system um so so that's so that's kind of why i think they are difficult because it breaches that principle but why i think they could be beneficial on those two fronts raising money fundamentally and empowering patients uh connor jones says um oh yeah you asked me to keep you updated on my focus group of my mum and gran. We've got two focus groups going now, uh, Connor Jones's uh, mum and gran and uh, Denise Willier's mum, who had always, I think mum, was it Denise? Yeah, mum, not father, who had always uh, been Tory, but uh, is not going to vote Tory next time. Anyway, Connor, uh, mum and gran. So I decided to ask them, this is the latest from Connor's focus group, about Starmer. And to my surprise, they both quite liked him. They said he looked more like a prime minister than Johnson and seemed more honest. 
Unfortunately, they live in an incredibly safe Tory seat where the closest opposition is the Liberals, but still interesting if their opinions are replicated elsewhere. Well, Connor, let's see. Let's see how it all develops uh, in the coming months. But do keep us informed on your uh, focus uh, group. I'd say it doesn't matter where they are in terms of seats. It's just whether they are moving and it, and with what degree of conviction and so on. Uh, so, yeah, we've got our own exclusive, to use that uh, term the BBC or some in the BBC ache to use more often. We've got our exclusive focus groups. Uh, Stephen Townsley, oh, Frost, talk about union, Jack Sox. Uh, Stephen Townsley says, Lord Frost says, we will be able to judge whether Brexit is success is a success in 2067. Uh, are you planning a Brexit special in King's Place in 2067? <laughs> then he adds, will Labour feel able to mention it by then? Don't bank on it, Stephen. Uh, but yeah, I'll be there on 2067 uh, with my union Jack socks on with a Brexit special saying, oh yeah, after 50 odd years, uh, we can detect some benefits. Um, book your seats for that one. Uh, thank you, Stephen. On to uh, Jonathan Rice. Oh, by the way, Jonathan Rice listens to the podcast whilst ironing. That's at least two, Laundry Joe uh, and Jonathan uh, doing the ironing. Um, by the way, Laundry Joe wrote uh, me, uh, he, he had asked me how I'd deal with this whole trans issue uh, if I was Starmer. He, he wrote a very good email about how he would deal with it as Starmer. In fact, you must come along to one of the live shows, Laundry Joe, and I'll interview you as Starmer on the trans issue uh be it'll be well be a bit of fun if nothing else um uh you know but it's yeah so uh anyway jonathan also irons uh he said i was a huge fan of the american tv show the west wing which depicted an idealized presidency run by the highest people brightest people in the land uh, motivated by the highest moral purpose i'm sure i'm not alone among rock and roll politics listeners yep there was a period when Anyone involved in politics was obsessed with the West Wing. I'm interested in your views on what would happen if these principles were transposed onto British politics, particularly in the current era of deceitful, shambolic, name-calling government. What would happen to a political party which was truly honest with voters about the biggest issues facing us? That Brexit has been a disaster, and we need to rejoin the EU, that we need to address climate change urgently, and it's going to cost us, similarly social care, and then build a moral case for addressing these problems with the true long-term interests of the nation at heart. Could these be attractive to voters? Probably, I don't know, Jonathan. I just, you just don't know. We are living in a kind of completely different world from that West Wing era. Um, and uh, candor in elections can be quite dangerous. I'm thinking of doing the 2017 election on Patreon soon. Um, it was another fascinating election which needs further study. And in fairness to Theresa May, she was absolutely honest about how she planned to deal with social care and pay for it. And it was a disaster, such candor. Um, anyway, uh, Jonathan also says, I've written before complimenting you on your impressions. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's nice of you. I liked your Tony Ben, and I was pleased to hear your Paul McCartney wheeled out uh, in the last podcast. I'm wondering who else you have up your sleeve. Yeah, I, can, uh, yeah, I, it, it, I didn't think the McCartney quite well. I, I've done McCartney for years. He's quite easy, actually. Yeah, you can't do this laid-back kind of talk, you know. Oh, yeah, I kind of thought of yesterday when I was, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I, I can do lots of voices, Jonathan, lots of voices. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't sometimes, don't know why it's, it, things are so bloody serious. Um, but yeah, I, I can do lots of voices, but I'm not an impressionist actually. Um, this pathetic kind of middle-aged bloke doing his impressions, you know? Um, anyway, on now, uh, to, uh, Rob Watson. I gave evidence recently to the House of Lords and Digital Committee on the future of the BBC or were on to co-payments or, or other means of funding. And one of the things discussed was funding for the BBC. I suggested that what is missing is the feeling that we have a meaningful stake in the BBC. Uh, we pay our flat tax, the licence fee, but we don't have a say about how the BBC is run or what kind of services it provides. It's a big problem, this. Uh, you're right, Rob. Um, and it's one of the reasons why 
this multi-layered management is so cocooned. Uh, you know, they are they are terrified of the newspapers or some newspapers, the Times, the Mail in particular, the Sun, they used to be, not so much now, um, and some Twitterati uh, from the right. Um, but they are, they are not, the, the levels of accountability are too ill-defined. Anyway, he says, I suggested that the BBC would benefit from being turned into a federated mutual organisation or co-op. When we pay our licence fee, we should think of our payment as an investment in the future of the BBC, but we would have a structured route for our views to be reflected in the planning and the development of BBC services. Um, what do you think of this idea of turning more of our social institutions into mutual societies and cooperatives? I completely agree with you um, that it is. Uh, it, it, it seems to me an under examined route every now and then it comes into fashion uh cameron was briefly interested in cooperatives and the cooperative model but his attention span was as as limited as johnson's and it, it, it never went anywhere um a new labor were for a time as well uh anyway it's it's taking off on this podcast because we got the bbc as a cooperative model and indeed rock and roll politics us lot all together forming a cooperative uh so maybe you could run it rob uh but I, I i agree with you and it gives it gives people a stake and a sense of belonging which is very useful for an institution which is being funded by these people and it makes it for a more kind of nimble alert institution that doesn't survive on cliches like oh what we need are more scoops you know it's such shallow thinking uh yeah okay uh thank you very much um oh yeah quick word from jerry fox uh yeah oh he says oh yeah talk about us being a cooperative he, he goes further he says rock and roll politics is so punk creative and cuts through so i've, I've, I've always thought that jerry uh, thank you for that assessment. I've always seen my kind of role in kind of the world of political commentary as uh, Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten. Um, and I'm really pleased that you've uh, kind of absolutely confirmed it for me. Uh, thank you very much. Um, Gail Sandler uh, writes that... Um, uh, oh, she's listened to and enjoyed the podcast all through the lockdown. Thank you. And have now switched to Patreon. Oh, I much appreciate that. Uh, thank you, Gail. I also attended a couple of your King's Place events. There'll be more to come soon, Gail. Uh, more announcements to come on that soon. Um, she says, I always find your political analysis interesting. Ah, uh, is that sort of, uh, sort of ominous praise? Interesting. Always worry about that. Anyway, Gail's question. The pandemic was a terrible time for everyone, but one of the worst aspects to me was the closure of the schools. A newish book is The Year the World Went Mad by Professor Mark Woodhouse. In the Times yesterday, an article by James Kirkup lamented this decision on, as very damaging with long standing consequences i know and remember myself that when the government tried to open schools the unions were dead against it i know teachers who wished to get back pupils get pupils back to the classroom but the unions were uh, against it why did labor support the union's decision on this both jonathan and ashworth and keir starmer are on the record with this despite what they uh, may say now um yeah well gail it was incredibly com complex at the time um because I, I'm, I'm sure you're right that uh uh the unions were inflexible at times but so uh was that bloody virus inflexible at times and it was famously seen as one of the big spreaders uh at the height of the vaccine uh, sorry at the height of the pandemic before the vaccine um so i can understand you see johnson was absolutely determined to keep the classrooms uh, open and um, uh, had to do a sort of sweeping U-turn very speedily. Uh, I think literally the, the, they opened for one day at one point and then they had to be uh, closed. And uh, and Starmer, I know, prevaricated similarly. He wanted them open and then he was then he didn't and so on. But they were both at that point navigating their way through the fogginess of the pandemic when uh, no one had been vaccinated. So I have to say, uh, uh, Gail, uh, pl please don't stop 
listening is a kind of thing, but I can understand why the, the schools had to close. What I also understand is the nightmarish consequences. And teachers tell me, uh, and I, I will I'll get hold of the book, Gail, um, that uh, the, the, the consequences are absolutely still being played out uh, with kids um, really, in some cases, kind of two years behind as a result of the hell of not being able to get to the schools. Um, so I completely understand that, but it was it was such a it was such a tricky time um, in, in making those judgments. I'm on the kind of I'm afraid a pro lockdown wing gale. I'm I, I'm still worried now that it's all too free and libertarian uh, with the impact on hospitals. I think it's a kind of underplayed story. Uh, the pressure on hospitals at the moment it, it it it's gone out of fashion like Brexit, so it just doesn't get. The media coverage. Um, now, while we're on health, um, Caroline Morgan uh, has written. Uh, she she works in in Brussels, but comes over to London, and she made a series of brilliant points. Uh, Caroline, I haven't got time to read them all out, but here's one. Uh, you mentioned the sacred cow. We we're talking about health uh, last week, um, and this co-payments thing. As I live half in Brussels and half in London, I get my health care in two countries. And this is really interesting. And this is uh, it's great when we get these emails from uh, uh, from other parts of the world because we become, you know, we, yeah, I suppose I'm talking about us a lot. Uh, you know, there's a tendency towards parochialism, even amongst we internationalists on this podcast. So uh, uh, this is uh, Caroline. Admittedly, Belgium spends more of its GDP on healthcare than the UK by a few percentage points, something like 9.5% UK versus 12% Belgium. But healthcare is way, way better in Belgium. You can choose your GP and change easily if not satisfied. You can choose your consultant and go straight to him or her without a referral. There are no six or ten person wards in hospital. Maximum is four but norm is single or double rooms. A consultant friend here in Brussels who did part of her training in the UK said that she thinks, medically speaking, knowledge levels are similar in the two countries. But in terms of cleanliness and modernity of hospitals, Belgium is way, way ahead. And this is where I come to your buy-in point. In Belgium, you pay for your medical treatment up front and normally get 80% back from health insurance. But it's way cheaper in the UK. A GP visit costs thirty euros. Um, it's uh, a, a consultant visit costs around a hundred euros in a public hospital. If you're on benefits, you don't pay. People don't tend to miss GP visits because they might be charged if they don't show up. The big plus for me is that you choose your doctor, both GP and hospital. So if you're not happy, you go elsewhere. GP's practices in the UK have fallen apart during COVID, with many no longer offering face-to-face -face appointments. That isn't the case at all in Belgium. It's easy to get an appointment, and you can simply go to another GP if yours can't see you. Health insurance isn't very expensive in Belgium, starts at about €300 Euros a year. And for that, you get 80% back for most of your medical expenses, including dentistry. Yeah, well, this is so, so interesting. You see, we, I mean, the insularity, you know, the UK and the, the NHS as a structure and as a concept is brilliant, but it is under-resourced compared, well, we've just heard the example of Belgium and there are other examples and we've got to address this. And you know this term patriotism, you know, oh, Britain, everything's wonderful. Um, surely you could frame an argument about it's patriotic, to make the NHS properly resourced. And then you can find ways of funding that is fair. It sounds very fair in Belgium. Um, and you get that leverage, which means you can still see a GP when you want. If you don't like the GP, you can move. Surely we want this in the UK. And we've got to find, if we agree that's the end, the quality of healthcare in Belgium, how do we get there? A big question for all of us in this new rock and roll punk cooperative that's being formed anyway look we've been going for over an hour um and you'll have finished baking bread jogging and delivering the bread and what have you um and walking to your bell ringing session um by now i would think so thank you so much for listening say if you 
can sign up to the Patreon. That would be great. And thank you, those who have. Um, and yeah, oh yeah, I've got to remember again, please leave a review if you don't mind, only if it's good, because then others get to have access to the podcast for reasons I don't understand, but apparently it's fundamental. Um, and thank you. Sorry, I, I got hundreds of questions this week, unsurprisingly, with so much going on. Sorry if I didn't read them out. They've certainly stimulated the themes of the podcast, and maybe we'll get to some more uh, next week. But have a great time uh, if you're away on Easter. and stuff. Do tune in, of course, and subscribe, and you'll still be getting the podcast, um, because this is a podcast that never sleeps, frankly. Anyway, look, uh, it's tumultuous out there but have a great time and let's get together next week to once again make sense of it all thank you